I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club podcast. This is episode 51. With me, as always, is that white wizard, Jeff Goad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to break your staff in two, Hoy. <laughs> and today, we're very honored to have special guest, Anna B. Meyer, fantasy cartographer extraordinaire, known for her work on the uh, ongoing Greyhawk project and Midgard for Cold Blood Press. Hello, Anna. Hi. So glad to have you here. Um, and uh, we will be talking today about the two towers. Uh, but first, Anna, can you tell me about a little bit about your background in gaming and also how you came to know about Appendix N, if you do? Well, um, I've been playing D&D since 7980, so I'm, I'm kind of the first wave of gamers that have been playing role-playing games ever since, one way mm-hmm. or the other. Primarily fantasy games and D&D in every edition and way, shape, and form through the years and and yeah and i just been fell in love in fantasy back in the day and 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 it's still going on and i always wanted to to do something and write monsters or, or do adventures or whatever but i realized maps was my thing so to speak so 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 my speciality became to to do really large setting maps and cover continents and countries and stuff so and I, I'm curious, Anna, um, what was it about Greyhawk specifically that really captivated you? And I would love to know if you were inspired by the kind of maps that you often see in 60s and 70s paperback fantasies. Yes, definitely. They were, they were, yeah, they were huge inspirations. So that and and my interest in landscape and photography and, and stuff like that, that was kind of, I wanted to visualize the world, what it looks like. So that was the, the key for me. I wanted to, to see what the world was like. And, and not from a, only a word perspective, but from a visual perspective, too. Mm-hmm. And when technology started coming along that made that possible, I kind of grasped that. But I love to have one foot in the old parchment maps and one foot in the modern satellite visualized, like from gaming and from movies and stuff like that. So I tried to marry the two. Mm-hmm. And were you interested, uh, interested in gaming uh, in Sweden or were you or introduced we- elsewhere? It, yeah, it was in in Sweden back in 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 early days. We were okay. it was a friend of a friend that has been had been in America and got a, a so we had we got some contact with D and D. So we had a Xerox copy of the rules and one set of dice for the whole table, so to speak, for <laughs> the great. gaming wow. community. And I never I don't know who this person is that actually got here early and and went to high school or college or something for a year and brought it back. But it kind of spread underground a little bit. There were no gaming stores or nothing like that and then mm-hmm. so that's how we started playing and then more and more gamers started coming in in sweden as well and there started to be conventions and and there were a few stores who carried the stuff and so on and so right. so it was very yeah and sweden's actually quite well known currently for its, its game design chops in terms yes. of everything yeah. going out yeah. there yeah um and 
and were people where they're sort of um sort of bootleg English translate uh, English to Swedish translations of Dungeons Dragons, or were you all no, playing in English? Or, no, yeah. we, actually, what, Swedes are fairly adept at English, so we mm. kind of used the, the original books wholesale. But mm. there was a Swedish game called Drakkar and Demoner that was kind of a uh, actually not a ripoff of D and D. It was a ripoff of Chaosium's Middle Earth roleplay, and 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 used mm. that system. So it was kind mm. of a, a, a version of that, and they they came out fairly early and that's why i missed my first chance to be part of the the gaming industry because they they kind of uh, the, one of the founders sent me a letter back this is before the internet so sent me a physical letter and asked what we th- thought about the product he sent us a, a copy of, of the beta rules Mm-hmm. And I simply said, no, it's not as good as DD, blah, 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 whatever. <laughs> and, and then I was worrying already. Exactly. And then a few years later, that company became big and they've done um, uh, games like Cult and others who've now been translated into English and spread here so so, so and sold here and, and worldwide. So they became a, a fairly large game publisher a few years later. So I realized if I'd jumped on the bandwagon I've had a chance, but I was not smart enough to realize that. So yeah. <laughs> and did you then later on through I mean it must have been relatively difficult at first to get these books. Did you become aware of Appendix N as a concept through uh, at that time or was that later on? Or? Yes, I I've I've been aware of it. I've my problem is I haven't been that literally. I've read the, the Lord of the Rings and a few other fantasy a few times, but I should read more fantasy than I do. I've, I've gamed more than I've read fantasy, so, mm-hmm. so that's one of my problems. But I've read, fairly, I've read all the Tolkien books at least once, and I've read the Lord of the Rings now three times, third time. So for this podcast, I reread the whole book. So, right, right. Oh, so that's fantastic. Yep. So now I'm curious, how long had it been since you had last cycled through the Lord of the Rings? Uh, I read it last uh, in the late '90s. That was the the first I read it in Swedish. I first read the the first translation of The Hobbit in Swedish, which is an awful translation. So I mm-hmm. thought, what crap is this? Because I'm one of the few that started playing D and D before I read any of the Tolkien books or were aware it. So I was not aware of, of fantasy, literally fantasy, before I started playing. So so gaming was my first encounter with fantasy. And then people mm-hmm. said, oh, this is about the books and it coming from Tolkien and stuff. So I started, first I read Bilbo, the Swedish tra- old Swedish translation, which was awful. And is then that I read the uh, Tova Janssen illustrations or uh, Tova Janssen illustrations. No, or? it doesn't have any illustrations. It has right. one thing on the front, and the illustration is not the bad, but the translation right. is ter- terrible. Right. Because I remember seeing some of those. Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, seeing no, some no. Tova Janssen illustrations, and they were yeah. extremely bizarre but beautiful. Because yeah. I mean, I love the moment, the moment troll books. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. there's yeah. some some good ones. I, I think they they are not part of the book, but they yeah. were associated with it for. Mm-hmm. And there might be one. I got a cheap pocket edition back in the day when I read it. And and it was it was terrible. And then I read the the uh, the Lord of the Rings, the Swedish translation, which is much better. And then I read the 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 original English version of of Lord of the Rings, and and then I think the Swedish translation actually holds up fairly mm-hmm. well. And a lot of the names are fairly Nordic, kind of Finnish and whatnot yes. in, in the name, right. so so it fits rather well. And mm-hmm. and and now I read reread the the Lord of the Rings again in the original English, and and I did that. The last time I did it was before when I heard that the movie's going to come out in the 90s. I read it the second time mm-hmm. okay. in English. Yeah. Yeah. My last time through them was also in the 90s. And Hoy, I'm sure we discussed this the last time we recorded um, and we discussed the Fellowship of the Ring, but I don't recall your answer. When, when, when did you most recently my read My last time was probably right after the movies came out. 
Um, I had read about three or four times before, but yeah, right after the movies, maybe around 2005, 2006, probably was the last time I read them through completely. All right. So let's go ahead and take a moment to discuss which edition of the book we were reading. Uh, Today, I'm reading one of the original officially licensed paperbacks by Ballantine. And the one that I have is the seventh printing that was printed in December of 1969. And it has the J.R.R. Tolkien watercolor painting on the cover. Um, and it's basically just a, a, a beautiful, thick forest on the cover. Um, Anna, which one? Which edition are you reading? I'm re- reading the, the 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 pocket edition of all three books in in there in one go, so to speak. It's from Harper Collins, and it's printed in 1995. So this is, I think, the first pocket edition that had all the three volumes in one go, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. You would need one rather large pocket for that edition. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's a huge one. It's like what is it? Uh, it's uh, 1100 pages oh. <laughs> yeah it's 1160 60 pages something like that and it has all the maps and stuff in the back too so it's 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 uh, i think one of the most comprehensive kind of all all included in one right. tome of, yeah. of the whole thing and yeah. and yeah so I, I i kind of bought it in the 90s and and i wrapped it in in, in transparent plastic so we can hold on this book has Ooh. been to many countries and i read it in when i was back in the military and it's been to many countries and it's been through some 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 it interesting like it would make a good pillow if you were uh, out in the field someplace. Yeah. And- yep. It's, it, yeah. <laughs> and this was back in the day before iPads and, and electronic books and stuff. So I wanted to have something something to read. So so this one I've read it twice now. That's wonderful. How about you, Hoy? Um, this time I read my Kindle copy, but the last time I read it was the uh, 2004 reset edition with the uh, Alan Lee painting of Orthanc on the cover. Oh, ooh. And um, I also have with me another one of my Chinatown copies, which is the uh, Valentine with the oh, funky, funky wow. purple cover. And yeah, that's the, the Jack Gogan cover, right? Um, I think it is. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the woman who is the artist. Um, Barbara something. This one doesn't have any. Uh, uh, um, it's got some ring rates and it looks like it's Orthanc. And it's got She Lob on there. You can sort of see oh, She Lob. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love that cover yeah, so yeah. much. And, yeah. But the copy that you have, Jeff, is the one that I read back in the day, the one with the Tolkien's drawings of the of the trees. So that's yeah, the, that's yeah. I think that's a lot of people's introduction to the original series, at least mm-hmm. in America, were, were the ones that I'm working my way through. Mm-hmm. All right. So before we uh, descend into the library to talk about the two towers, we're going to quickly look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Dingle. Dingle. And Dingle actually appears four times within four pages. It's on it's twice on page 105, once on page 106, and once on page 108. I did not know what the word Dingle meant. Uh, but on 105, it says, The hobbit saw that they were descending into a great Dingle, almost as round as a bowl, very wide and deep, crowned at the rim with the high, dark, evergreen hedge. And a Dingle is a deep wooded valley or dell. Mm. Oh, that's a good word. All right. So with that, we are now in the library. And Anna, what did you think of The Two Towers? When I read it again now, it, I had the movies in, in, in the background. So they gave me more of the visualization, too. This is the first time I read the book when I had the movies in the background and also way more of, of adventuring experience. So so I and so the, the, the kind of 
that it is the, the road movie part, is the, the part when they go through the world. And one of the eerie things that struck me now is, especially when, when Saruman and today's uh, toxic politics and all that, it was kind of a, a very interesting dive into a fantasy version of, of that toxic politics. It was a little mm-hmm. bit of, of, of that sweet talk and, and interesting. And that rent bell, and I think that Tolkien was very schooled at this from the time he wrote the book. And and I can see a lot of, 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 of kind of parallels in, into the world, the, the, the day and age we live in now. So that gave the the, the whole story even more of, of an authentic feel to me. And and, mm-hmm. and that was something I never real, realized when I read it before, because that was in, in different times from what we live in today. And, and and that was kind of an, a very eerie reminder of political propaganda. You can see things from different sides and and yeah. and, and so on. And that kind of was very true to me. And, and that kind of proved that Tolkien was more than, than just elves and, and the language bit. He was aware of the time of his day and, and how that type of propaganda and thinking and 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 corruption and so on really works and demagoguery I, yeah. yeah exactly he 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 seemed it was it's like some master strokes into it that that was really developed way more in the book than than in the movie for obvious reasons because they need to skip mm-hmm. through a lot of that quickly in order to to tell the story but in the book it's kind of laid out and i just love that those parts were, were with saruman and and the way he's tried to 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 get a ease through the story and, and get out of, of harm's way, so to speak. That was fantastic. Yeah, and not only with uh, Saruman, but also with Wormtongue. Like, mm-hmm. both of them yep. were constantly using language to manipulate people yep. Yep. to uh, make them think that they're that they're going down the right path mm-hmm. and to get them to believe something that's only going to benefit the people who are already in power and yep. are using power for evil. Right. Mm-hmm. And Saruman even talks himself into it, right? Because there's a moment yeah. when he almost wavers when Gandalf says, you know, come down again and be, what, you know, basically who you used to be, right? Yeah. And then he, and he kind of just can't quite go there, right? He's too, mm-hmm. got too much pride, too much ego. Um, one thing that comes up, I think, uh, amongst the various people when we, whenever we discuss Lord of the Rings is it seems to be the book that you need it to be every, sam- every single time you read it. When you're young, you don't pick up on these political uh, t- you know, tonalities, you don't pick up on the sort of passing the themes of old age and then when you're older you, you see those things going on when you read it to your kids you get another thing going on so i think that's a big that's really what's that, amazing about this book yeah that, that's fan, yeah that, fantastic now i'm really yeah like the third time in in, in my 50s and and like you said that gives me a, a whole different perspective yep yeah and this book really kind of it's 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 a very kind of fractured piece in a sense because we've got the we have the story of Merry and Pippin with the Ents. We have the story of uh, Legolas and Gimli and Aragorn with the Riders of Rohan, and then we've got Sam and Frodo kind of traveling on their own with Gollum. And then there's the kind of the moment with the with Faramir and the Men of Gondor. But of those kind of three sections, the Mary Pippin section, the Helm's Deep section, and the Sam and Frodo section. Which of those three were your favorite and or your least favorite? For me, I think it's the, the uh, when when the um, Aragorn, Legolas, and, and Gimli went there when the, the the Rohan and and the the, the 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 quest against Saruman and the attack of Helm's Deep and stuff. I think to me, that's the most interesting. The the the, the end section is kind of it gives an interesting 
bit of, of, of lore and, and stuff of the world, but it is a little bit tedious, I, I must say. It's not as bad as Tom Bombadil, but it's, it's, to, me, <laughs> to me, it's kind of, it's a little bit tedious. I, I know it needs to be there, but it's a little bit tedious. But I love when they tie it back, when they found the two hobbits in, 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 um, Isengard and and they found them feasting and all that that that's a wonderful piece and they bring it back in together but I think mm-hmm. the, the Helm's Deep and and the the troubles of, of Rohan and stuff that is to me the the most interesting because because it's big politics and it's also the, the interesting new friendship that comes between Legolas and 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 Gimli and and kind of love the interaction between these two characters is it's kind of amazing. Do you think, Anna, to an extent that's informed by you from being from a proud but relatively smaller country that's caught between two superpowers growing up? Between... Yes, I think so, too. And and one of the interesting things that comes to, to mind is that Sweden is supposed to be this neutral country. And and I've often encountered in, in fantasy books that I love and, and go back to, to Gygax. And, and, and Greyhawk, it's, it's a lot about the, the balance of power and someone being in between. And coming from a neutral country, I kind of detest that. To me, it's like when you have two bullies, someone bullies someone else on the schoolyard and you don't take sides. You just try to stay aside while two ones fighting. And to me, that, that goes against my, that was the, I see uh, the fraudulent thing in the thinking of where I grew up. So every time I see it, I'm kind of, no, don't go that way. And, and but it's still interesting to see other takes on it because that's something I grew up more like, like a religion and, and it's a thought of mind that you're supposed to have and it's interesting to see that being used in fantasy books to, to, to see whether my thoughts are true or not and, and because I want to see more the, the, that theme highlighted in more different ways and, and it's so interesting to see that's part of the story here for good and bad so yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Hoy, which of the which of those sections did you find most resonated with you and least resonated with you? Hmm. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think that um, before, I think when I was younger, I did like Mary and Pippin's section because obviously, um, you know, when you're a kid or something like that, you kind of relate to the hobbits a little bit more than all these sort of giant mysterious people around you like Gandalf or Aragorn and stuff like that. Um, the... Um, and it is an interesting piece of world building. And I think it's important in their development because you see these hobbits at that point, they have not yet come into their sort of own greatness, right? Because later on, we know that Pippin and Mary and Frodo and Sam, despite being these humble little characters, are each great in their own ways as much as the various heroes of Middle Earth. Um, so I think it is important to see them as sort of uh, little, you know, young men, callow, not quite, not quite uh, players in the world. Um, but the the whole uh, stuff in Rohan is very compelling. You know, Rohan is a younger nation compared to, you know, the Gondor or or these other kingdoms, and they're finding their place in the world. They have a pride, um, and that's pretty important. Um, the Sam and 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 Frodo stuff is is um, very compelling. It feels a little long, but it's supposed to feel. You're supposed to feel a little bit depressed like them. You're supposed to feel like you're all alone. And slogging through and never knowing where you're going to get to to get to where you're going, and then when you have those little moments of reprieve, like when they meet Faramir, that's really important too. So I'm going to sort of punt and say that I don't have a favorite, but again, at certain points in my life, certain things will will resonate with me more than others. So at mm-hmm. the moment, I would say the stuff, the sort of state, statesman stuff, does resonate with me more with me than say, uh, Frodo, um, Mary and Pippin. 
Yeah. For me, the, the, the part that really worked for me the most was really the, the Sam Frodo and Gollum section. And that's because it's, it's such a personal story at that point. And I really think that the kind of nuances of the relationships between each of those three characters is really interesting and compelling stuff for me. You know, I love when um, when Sam thinks Frodo has died and Sam takes the ring for himself and then discovers that Frodo indeed isn't dead. That was a very emotional scene. I, I love the relationship that Frodo and Gollum have for each other. I think this, um, like the pity that Frodo has for Gollum, and Frodo kind of relates to Gollum too because he can feel the corrupting force of this ring. So because of that, Frodo has a tremendous level of empathy for this like poor wretched little creature who, in a lot of ways, can't really help who he's become. And although he is like an an awful little evil being on a, on a, without really a whole lot of argument there. Um, Frodo can still feel a lot of compassion for him. And even Sam, whose primary concern is taking care of Frodo when he sees Gollum kind of had that conversation with himself and kind of hear that literal struggle of the two voices inside him. Sam also has a tremendous amount of compassion for Gollum. So I find a lot of that stuff is very compelling and interesting storytelling with a, with a level of emotional depth that I often don't see, and I'm not going to generalize and say in fantasy literature, I just often don't see in literature. Like, mm-hmm. I, it's, it's done really, really well. Um, but then likewise, um, the Helm's Deep stuff, I remember as a teenager, uh, when I first read the Helm's Deep section, my eyes would just cross and glaze over at all the war writing, and I'm 39 now, and it still does the same thing. <laughs> and hearing Anna talk about how effective that that section is for her, and then looking at my experience of how like that's the section I always struggle the most with. I don't even think at that point it's it, it, it can be a statement on J.R.R. Tolkien's style of writing. I think it's just I have a hard time reading giant scenes of war, even in other like when I've read like the the. Um, the Song of Ice and Fire books. Also, those are the scenes where like my eyes just glaze over. Something about giant war writing, it just never really, I have a hard time following it. Right, right. Uh, Anna, you had mentioned you had served in the military. Uh, is that uh, universal in, in Sweden, like like many countries? Yeah, or was that, yeah, yeah, it was almost universal. All yeah. men had to, to draft uh, and they had to do at least six months of, of service, a bit like Israel. Not for women, though, but, mm. but they were, it was voluntary for women. But nowadays, it's starting to be, they come back again. They took it away for a few years and now Russia is rearing its ugly head, so it's coming back again. So, right, right. So, so, but it's, that, I think, affected me to somewhat. But I think the reason, one of the reasons that I really like the Rohan and the Helm's Deep section of the book now is now I have the movie uh, kind of the visuals behind me because mm-hmm. that was something that the, the, the those scenes are they are just mentioned in the book. There's like a few pages, like three, four, five pages maybe that actually talks about the battle and a few heroic scenes now and then. But the movie, that's a whole hour of of Battle of Helm's Deep. That's a huge thing in, in the movies, but very little. It's mentioned and talked about in the book, but like I said, Battle scenes don't do well in literature. You can talk right. about them and, and so on, but they it's hard to describe it. It just gets tedious and boring, and 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 maybe some some military farts could, can in, enjoy it, but the rest will and even me will kind of shy away from it. But I think Tolkien did a, a great job of talking about the situation. He he 
emphasized a few interesting moments here and there, but you also learn some of the new things that I didn't realize the previous times I read the book that Rohan was once part of Gondor and, and got his freedom and, and so on. So there's so many tidbits that are in the book that I've now realized the third time I'm reading it, it's like, ah, that comes from here. And Right. And one of the other things that I think it's it's kind of interesting is that class is a clear concept in the book. You get the sense that you have the lords up there talking about the big things and then you have the 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 little hobbits, but even among the hobbits, Sam is clearly Frodo's servant and, right. and he, he acts like it. He's say my master and, and so on. So 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 there is a, a class structure in the books that I think Tolkien was keenly aware of because he mm. probably lived in a class society. And mm. and so he uses that i don't know if he uses it out of spite but out of tradition and and right. and it, it's very fitting i think but right. it's yeah so so that that's an interesting part of the book right. to tie the two things you said together i think it's a very important and interesting because in many ways sam is the character that's very easy to identify with and, and in some ways is sort of the secret hero of the trilogy yeah um, because he actually becomes one of the ring bearers right mm-hmm. uh, even for a little wh- a while but sam um, as uh, empath- um, uh, sympathetic as he is, he still has to learn empathy. He's in his class structure. He never had to. He's Frodo. This is the wise master. You know, he loves his grandfather. He loves all the sort of the local little things of the Shire, but ultimately he has to learn empathy for even Gollum, Smeagol. And if he had learned it a little sooner, maybe Smeagol wouldn't have been a little so tempted to turn on them. You know what I'm saying? Because Smeagol feels like he's. I mean, Smeagol's evil, right? But he feels like yeah. he's being put upon. He, in his mind, he thinks he's the victim. Right. Um, so if Sam had learned a little earlier and been a little less suspicious, would Gollum or Smeagol have been less likely to turn? Maybe this was just yeah. destiny, but this is a, an aspect of, say, maybe the negative aspect of the class structure, right? The servant yeah. is the servant, but they're always very clearly aware of who is below them and who is above them, right? In a way that yep. people in a sort of more open democratic society don't necessarily think about as much, right? Yep. Yeah, I think it's it's very interesting that that it's it's so ingrained, but not in a necessary bad way. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the interesting studies I think with fantasy in general is that that democracy and and freedom is not talked about in 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 any real terms. And mm-hmm. I think that's both very interesting and and kind of rewarding because I, that's a part of fantasy that I think it's it's good to have that in the backdrop, both when you write adventures and and when you when you play and when you read about these because it's it's an, an interesting study in evil, in class, in, in in structure of society, but in a very kind of casual leeway that you can just read and enjoy, but you can also think about these things as a reflection of our real society. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I know that Michael Moorcock was always a very vocal um, critic of Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And he also often referred to J.R.R. Tolkien as a crypto-fascist. Yeah. And um, I... And looking, and, and part of what he really disliked about the the story is he felt like there was a lot of xenophobia that's very present in the writing of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and it's interesting in reading how J.R.R. Tolkien describes both orcs and the men who are uh, who are working for the dark side. He often refers to them as swarthy and or slant eyed, and um, he does that with both the men and the orcs. And also an interesting thing is that there's an almost complete lack of women in this story. There, there's yep. very, women are almost completely non, not, not present. And I'm curious, as you are reading through this again, um, 
in 2019. I'm wondering, was any of that kind of um, more on the surface for you or did it not really affect your experience? No, it, it's interesting thing that I, when I read them first, it was like that my first experience in fantasy and I didn't think about it much. But then when the movies came out, was on the way out and it became an issue. And I heard that, that the, 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 Peter Jackson behind it. He was saying that he needed so tough, hard to to get. So he took all the the female heroes from the talking world and and put world and put them in the movie, whether they just played a tiny little role in some some obscure book. And he brought more women into the story in order to make it more palatable for for a modern audience. So now I'm keenly aware of it, but I don't think that to me it doesn't really mattered that much because for me it's an interesting study in evil and in 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 kind of greatest stories and and even if i i don't think that tolkien is it's a study in in fascism yes in a way but it's a study in evil and i don't get the attempt that he he tries to smooth it over because he really tries to emphasize evil but he also embodies evil as as a force of its own rather than something that that people can have have their own opinion about and 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 kind of choose sides from it's more like a, a, a Sauron is kind of this just embodiment of evil that corrupts everything. And mm-hmm. and in the real world, evil is more like something that is within us, not something that comes from outside. But I think the, he follows uh, or he, he settled the fantasy tradition of having more kind of evil as a, as a real force in the world. Right. And, and I think that's yeah. important because he was Catholic. And I think he did believe in sort of like pre-Vatican II Catholic, right? He that's, did believe in yeah. supernatural mm-hmm. evil as a force yeah. rather than, yep. you know, mm-hmm. um, so... Um, yeah, and it seems like in addition to believing in the corrupting force of e- evil and that evil spread, I also feel like Tolkien may have felt that there is also an inherent evil that some people are just born with. And yeah. part of um, part of why I think he feels that way is he when he talks about how when the elves first started teaching the trees language and the Ents started kind of awakening the trees, discovering that many of them just had inherently bad hearts is how he describes it. And it, it is kind of this interesting idea of like, are people inherent, or some people just inherently evil? And are the people who are inherently evil able to turn people who would normally be good into forces of evil? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in, um, in fantasy, I think that that racism has a place to to tell the story, so to speak. And, and as long as you hear and say that it is, meaning orcs might be wholly evil in the fantasy world and 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 deserve to to be exterminated so to speak or really fought hard so so i think it's for, for a story perspective is good and it's also good because if you read and think about it then you can kind of see the differences between a real world and a fantasy world and and also to as a sort of escapism which i think is is a major part of fantasy is escapism to mm-hmm. to to have made up problems so you don't have to dwell on on, on our real problems but it also makes a perspective because it's a different world when th- work, things actually works differently from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And talking about the races is a great way to segue into the gaming side of this conversation because the elves and the dwarves that are present in the Lord of the Rings trilogy are very much the kind of elves and dwarves that we see in contemporary D&D and also in the very earliest iterations of it. Um, I'm curious, uh, starting with elves and dwarves, how do how, uh, what from these stories did you see that we've taken from that in Dungeons and Dragons um, in terms of how the, char- the, the character races operate? 
I think the dwarves are, are obviously straightforward and the halflings as hobbits. I think the elves are don't quite have the grandeur in D and D that they do in in Lord of the Rings. And specifically the elves are are in D and D and uh A D and D are are smaller and slimmer than human beings. Whereas mm-hmm. here they're quite much very much more mighty than the average human being, right? They're on, on a plane with the Numenorians, um, in terms of their power, their physical presence, what have you. Um Going back to the orcs for a second, I mean, the orcs are also, as you said, they're sort of coded as Asiatic, but their behavior is very much sort of like working class British when they're talking to each other, right? right? It's very Cockney when they're talking to each other. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that's an interesting way to code and, and, as, and to go back to your class thing a little bit. And so, um, and I think like, say, for example, Games Workshop kind of ran with that kind of orc. Where you know, sort of, they're a little bit comical when you know they're very fearful, but uh, fearsome, but they're also comical, and that's not the case in D and D. Anyway, so I'll throw that back at you guys, though. That's just sure, sure. I absolutely hear that. Um, One of the things that was interesting for me while reading the books was reading this book. Though was like seeing some of the specific traits of the of, of dwarves and elves in the literature that I didn't remember them coming from Tolkien. Like, for example, how elves don't really need a full night's sleep and they just kind of meditate for a few hours. I did not recall that coming straight out of Tolkien because Legolas is fully just kind of laying there with his eyes closed, with his eyes open for several hours, still alert, but actually resting. Or the thing about elf vision, how Mm -hmm. elves can see really far away. And I remember, I think that was true in AD&D and second edition, but I think that kind of tapered off with later editions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then talk about like dwarven endurance and things like that. Were there, okay. while, while, while you guys were reading the stories, did you guys kind of find any things that seemed like very obviously, oh, D&D took this from here? Yeah, I see the, the, the whole race structure is, is is basically talking straight out of the, the, the book, so to speak. And the, the, the elves is and, and I totally agree with it, the but the the elves is that interesting. That they are these super beings in in, mm-hmm. in, in, in Tolkien. They're like kind of above everybody else, especially in all the they live forever basically and they have all the, the physical their perception, all their senses are enhanced and their beauty is is godly and, and so on. So they're, they're that super being. And d and always have that because they started out with that. And and the interesting elves always had superior vision and, and they lived longer. And, and a lot of these stuff from, from Lord of the Rings, these traits were inherited. So they, they but mechanically that becomes a problem because all of a sudden you have a, a race that is superior to, to, to the other ones. So what they did, I remember the early times that they, basic D&D race and class was interchangeable. You didn't play a fighter, you played an elf but then mm-hmm. when ad and d came and all of a sudden the class was and race was two separate uh, things so you can play an elven fighter or an elven wizard or whatever it was and then they had to level cap it so, so you you can only if if you were a demi-human or like an elf or, or then you could only reach what was like seventh level and that will stop which is kind of stupid if you if you live forever then, then <laughs> right. you should really be able to reach the the the, 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 the heights so so right. mechanically mm-hmm. D always had a problem so so i've seen that the elves have been downplayed more and more and more to become just a a quirky human with, with the, like, can see it in, in dark a little bit and can right. cast some spells and have a little bit of affinity with nature and, yeah. and, and that pointy ears. Mm-hmm. And which is mechanically, I think it's good because they all had need to, to shave off the, the, the excesses in right. order to, to make them, them right. 
kind of yeah and they actually either. never mentioned at once in anywhere in Tolkien that elves have pointy ears i don't exactly. know exactly that, that's just <laughs> some, something that that have come from 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 fantasy in general i think and right, yeah, right. yeah exactly. that somehow made it into the movies though because you exactly. know all the elves yep. in the movies have pointy ears so right, right. it's kind of yep. interesting like where yeah, right. did that come from and how did that become kind of codified yeah. and i wonder i i'm assuming that when J.R. tolkien closed his eyes and envisioned an elf they probably didn't have pointy ears because yeah. i'm no, not I sure describe them that way if they had yeah i think yeah they, they were anything but silly so but right. i kind of like the pointy ears on elves yeah. and and the way it looked in the movies was kind of dulled down a little bit and and yeah. was done done kind of with style and finesse so to speak right. so right. yeah um, I think that mechanically, I mean, the dwarves and the halflings are identical to the extent, I don't remember, I haven't read the Monster Manual recently, but the tree ants are obviously the ants, and, you know, the mm-hmm. classic yep. demon is a Balrog. What they miss, in, in particular in terms of the elves, is that even if mechanically they're similar to elves in Tolkien, they don't have the sense of grandeur or tragedy, and the modern-day elf doesn't have that sense. And even uh, to the extent that the, the elves are actually um, quite fearsome i mean galadriel we all tend to think of she's this very benign person but she's actually quite fearsome right she could easily have been a dark lord if she had accepted the ring and she would have been on a par with with sauron right um but she didn't take the ring because she knows that's that's what she would become she did um so that the elves are, are quite um have have very powerful um egos on their own and this is becomes even more obvious when you read like the Silmarillion. Um, so that doesn't come across in modern D&D, you know, as far as what the elves are. The elves, as you say, are just sort of quirky humans uh, with a few extra special abilities. Yeah. Uh, the dwarves, I think, are much closer. Yeah. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. You know, in terms of what we see in, in D&D. They're definitely not mm-hmm. your um, Scandinavian dwarf of, you know, the, the Norse legends who, you know, dwell underground and make enchanted weapons and, and are allies of the giants, right? These are not those dwarves, right? Um, so... Um, but so yeah, the, the of the core sort of D and D races, the the halfling and the and the uh, dwarf fare much more uh, hew much more closely to Tolkien at least as D and D is played now in my mind. I, I would agree with that completely. Um, and also, I think that the ranger class is pretty obviously Aragorn and everything that Aragorn can do. You know, with his tracking and his trackless step. You know, there really is a lot of stuff that I, I know I know that Gygax claimed that Lord of the Rings was not a huge influence on Dungeons and Dragons. And I do know that Lord of the Rings was not his favorite, but it is very obvious reading this that a lot is taken from Lord of the Rings in the design of the game. Right. Like it yeah. can't be denied. Yeah, right. they even had to to change the name from Hobbit to Halflings because right. they got sued from right. from the earliest uh, edition to 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 mm-hmm. a, a rewrite. Yeah, so so that was so I I'm, I'm sure that was one of the the, the big influences, probably the biggest one. Yeah, right. I mean, I think no. you you could play D and D without any of the Tolkien influences, but I think from a commercial point of view, it was absolutely necessary at that time, considering how big Lord of the Rings was, that he enable people to play you know it's like well we're gonna play oh, fantasy agreed. game i'm gonna play lord of the rings no matter what i don't care if you put it yeah. in so he just yeah. had to get ahead of the curve and say well if you're gonna do it do it my way not yeah. you know your made up way totally. if yeah. he had left dwarves and elves out then yeah. the first imitator who came along to put dwarves and elves in probably would have become more popular than dungeons and dragons and dungeons and yeah. dragons would have lost that battle right mm-hmm. right yeah absolutely now looking at wizards and magic now, that's a 
big part of Dungeons and Dragons. And I've not read the Cimmerillion, and I and I my understanding is that in the Cimmerillion we learn that the wizards actually aren't humans and that they're kind of angel beings or something like that. I'm not entirely sure. Right. Uh, but that's not explored in these three books. But regardless, magic doesn't seem to be presented as something that Faramir might be able to learn. Um, it doesn't seem like it's something that just any normal human being can just kind of sit down, study, and eventually pick up on their own. And the significance of this, the wizard staff seems very important in this story. You know, Gandalf has to bring his staff in with him when he goes to um, meet with Wormtongue and... For, I'm not, not, is it Theoden? Theoden, yeah. Theoden yeah, when they go into... Right, he's isolated by the door, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Then, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But he does, and he's like, would you deprive an old man of his walking stick? Yeah. Uh, and when uh, Gandalf casts down Saruman, he does it by breaking his staff in two. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm maybe, and maybe you guys know, maybe you've read the Cimmerillion and they've explained the staff. Like, what is the deal with the wizard staff? Do you guys know? No, I don't think uh, I can, it was such a long time since I read it, but I don't think the staff was explained specifically. But it, mm-hmm. but I think you're really onto something that that ordinary people can't learn magic that way and it seems to me that wizards have replaced the become the placed gods because there's no talk about gods or religion or priests or anything in 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 Tolkien maybe he wanted to to shy away from that whole concept too, because this is a time when when religion was much stronger in in, in Britain when he wrote it that, than it is today so 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 I guess he shied away from it but in a way I see the wizards and some of the other beings as kind of representative of of, of a divine structure and, and a divine capability, so to speak, because they, mm-hmm. they are kind of, of extra immortal beings to some, some extent. They, they start out as more normal, but Gandalf seemed to have been around forever, like Saruman, and, and, and they seem to climb in, in, in the hierarchy in their order, and Galadriel and others. They, it seems to be that to have the being a wizard, so to speak, is then you some sort of immortal being that are, are above even the elves in, in power mm-hmm. and, and persistence. Right, right. Um, basically, yeah, they sort of allude to it, but they don't explicitly spell it out. Although I think it's in the uh, appendices of the third book that they start doing this, and in the similar, and the, basically the wizards are sort of divine power. Uh, they're sort of a lesser order spiritual being on the level of the Balrogs who are imbued with physical mm-hmm. bodies. And so when they're yeah. in their physical bodies, they have all the the weaknesses of mortal beings, right? Um, but this great spiritual strength that they carry with them. And, and magic does seem to be more, not a matter of knowledge and rituals, right? In, in Tolkien, it is a matter of spiritual power, right? Gandalf's greatest thing is not throwing lightning bolts or, 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 or you know, thunderbolts or various things like that. You know, there's an argument, some early D&D people said, oh, Gandalf's only a fifth level wizard because he never does anything more than that in D&D terms. But his... His greatest ability is to sort of um, bring good heart, bring good cheer to people who are in despair, right? Yeah. You know, his, his spiritual presence strengthens the people around him, right? Yeah. Um, and that he, is a trait that carries along to even mortal beings, but who are of long lineages like Aragorn, right? He, he makes people, you know, gather strength, 
But anyway, go on. Yeah, I was just going to say that D&D have picked up on this, the, the staff because that's now a, a, a feature of the wizard class to have a, 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 some sort of, of token that you, you bring your, your power into. And then it's that, that makes you cast some extra spells and it become a, a feature of the class to, to have a staff or some other object. And staff is one of the most common ones even mentioned in the book. So, so, so D&D has clearly taken uh, that hint because staffs have always been the, one of the most powerful magic items described in the, in the books, D&D books mm-hmm. and stuff. So, yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes in appendix and literature, when we see magic being used, oftentimes it tends to fall into kind of one of two categories, sorcery and wizardry. And sorcery is usually I'm summoning this demon and I'm getting powers from this demon that I'm serving and I'm doing this very elaborate ritual. And wizardry is usually like I'm casting a spell in this moment and it's a spell that I know and here it worked. Um, and certainly in the Fellowship of the Ring, or maybe I'm confusing with The Hobbit, we do have some moments where Gandalf does cast spells, where he's trying to open up the door magically. That's kind of a spell moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are moments where we see him trying to cast, where we see him successfully casting spells. Um, but it really, it really kind of doesn't necessarily seem like he's got some limited list of tools it kind of seems like he's just kind of channeling the forces around him potentially i don't know the the limits of gandalf seem very mysterious and intentionally so Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's the benefit you can do when you write a story. You you don't have to think about the mechanics. But when you have a game, all of a sudden the mechanics have it has to be fair. It has to be functional, and mm-hmm. and and so on. So so I think it's the nature of the medium because when you even if you take a a D and D adventure and you write it in the novel form, you don't want to to write the mechanics into the story. But mm-hmm. so, so you can kind of hide that and and just make it part of, of the character can do certain things and, and right. he can use it. So right. so I think it's it's part of the medium of, of the, the... And also, Tolkien didn't have a game to re- relate back to, so he could right. just write the story. Right, right. Absolutely. I mean, if you were to say, ask me, mechanically, as Gandalf appears in the book, he's actually far closer to me to a high-level cleric yes. than a magic user as D&D is written. You know? Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. He, he, you what, know, what do you mean by that? That the powers that he exhibits, you know, is... is you know, his power in, in skill in battle is f- far more than a wizard would be. It's like closer to being a cleric in terms of, you know, he actually fights the Balrog, not just with spells, right? He's, oh, he's I see his, the kind of uh, powers that he has seem more like clerical magic, you know, sort of like bless, like protection from evil, those kind of things, rather than, again, lightning bolt, rather than color spray, rather than, you know, resurrection. You know, I, I mean, oh, that, sure. Yeah. Those kinds of battle spells, actually, I find are not really common in the Appendix N at all. I actually right. feel like the most of the kind of spells that you see wizards casting in Appendix N novels tend to be kind of more illusions or tend to be kind of that kind of unseen style of magic that's like that bolsters somebody's courage or kind of just makes things uh, better for for all mm-hmm. and also this idea that like the wizard can only use a dagger is so dungeons and dragons because yes. I mean, yeah. elric is a wizard and he's yeah. wielding this giant sword you know, and, right. and gandalf's an incredible swordsman right yeah right? Mm-hmm. so i mean again that's it's that's as you as you say anna that's a, a game balance decision right yeah because to make up for all the other stuff that the wizard can do especially at high levels then you know we can't have them be the badass sword yeah. at the same but time. It's, yeah, but it's interesting to see that D and D 
now in its latest editions, and if you yeah. take the the the, the fork versions like Pathfinder and others, now it's becoming more that wizards can do a lot more other stuff and they can carry weapons and stuff. So right, right. it's coming back to full circle a bit because fantasy right. is becoming more accommodating and less stereotypical when right, it comes right. to the gaming terms. Right, right. Uh, back to our game, Jeff. Is specifically the the wizard in DCC can wield a long sword. So that's a, a little absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. As, as they should be able to. Yeah, right. One other thing that I didn't expect to come up um, while reading this was the silk rope. Now, yeah. I remember always seeing the silk rope in AD&D and I think second edition equipment lists. And I think oh. the silk rope disappeared after that. It always right. just became 50 feet of rope after that. Right. I remember the silk rope was lighter. Um what, and I just, I never really thought about it. Like, duh, like you just have regular rope and silk rope because that's right. just kind of how I was introduced to it. And then here it is right. in the two towers. Yeah. Uh, Sadwise has his his silk rope in his pack that he'd forgotten all about. Right. And he throws it up and yeah. it's nice and light. And now that they've climbed down, how are they going to get the rope down? Well, they just kind of tug it and it comes tumbling down because it was made by the elves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's how yeah. elven magic works. Right, yeah, right. I, I remember we had back in the day when we started gaming, we, we had someone who had read Tolkien said, oh, I have an elven rope. And I was like, what the, 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 the beauty of an elven rope and special. And, and I remember even from, from before reading the games, the elven rope was, was a kind of a, a thing that right. was, and everybody wanted an elven rope and we paid right. dear money for it. And, right. and when yeah, so so that has become a, a kind of a, an interesting game stay. Right. It's like the the the, the ten foot pole is one of right. these weird things that that is in D anD D. But but the, the elven rope, rope has been there. I mean, for, yeah, the cloak yeah. of elven kind too, with yeah. all the hops mm-hmm. and all the, yep. the company has, so you can just yep. you know go camouflage and you yep. know orcs can ride. Uh, the riders of Rohan right ride right by you, and then you stand mm-hmm. up, and they get all freaked out. Like, what, what yep. are you doing there? We just rode by you. Yeah, so, so it, it, <laughs> that, that's another couple of other perfect examples why I think Tolkien was such a huge influence on D anD D when it comes to mechanics and all that. Because some of the yeah, like staffs yeah. and 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 the elven rope and the the cloak of elven kind was kind right, of, right, yeah, and and sting glows to mm-hmm. detect detect orcs and, and yep. you know and cast light. And and um, it's implied that um, that uh, what uh, what's the uh, Narsil uh, Aragorn's sword is a magic sword, but certainly it is it glows right, and it was the it was the sword that originally cut off uh, Sauron's fingers so that the ring could be you know uh, cut, taken away from him. So it's it's magical in the sense that it was a sword of heroes, but we don't we you can't necessarily sit there and go oh. Narsil is a plus three sword, you know. Plus, it's not a holy avenger in in D anD D terms, um, but you know, Sting is probably maybe a little a plus one sword with the power to detect orcs. That's that's definitely a very uh, yeah. reasonable assumption to make. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah, and you know, also kind of pivoting away from how it may have inspired early D anD D and how reading this can inspire my current gaming. One of the things that I thought was really interesting is when Aragorn and company are traveling through the land. They're, they seem to be kind of, they, they mention how they have kind of this weariness about them that seems like it's coming from the outside as though this whole area is kind of under a spell. And when Saruman talks, um, his voice just kind of affects people in this very kind of um, 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 tangible way. And also as Frodo's walking with the ring, he can feel it get heavier when he's walking away from Mordor and kind of lighter as he goes towards it. And it just kind of reminded me that like I can I can throw in kind of environmental elements 
that um, don't necessarily need to be something that I can turn to a certain page in a book and see which spell that was cast. It's just something that's kind of a part of this item or this land kind of because of the mystical forces at hand. And I'm curious, as you guys were reading these stories, were there any things that you kind of like, oh, I like that, I'd like to use more of that? Oh, yeah, all of that really resonates with me. And that's something that I do in using my map making too, because I always try to think how the, the especially like evil areas, because I, I get a sense that something powerful as Sauron actually affects the whole landscape, meaning the, the colors of it, the mountains get weirder and, and, and all that. And I often, I often try to use that as part of it. Like elven lands have a certain glow on the colors and, and, and things look pretty and neat and, and so on and so forth. So, so that's something I clearly think about even in my map making but also in my mm -hmm. adventures and and I'll try to I, I sometimes I fool the 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 players by because I have one of my photo real maps so to speak of the terrain and then when I presented I, I turned it around I had the fog of war so they only saw the area they were in and, and they had to kind of navigate away and between sessions I twisted it a bit so, so so directions were a little bit different and they were kind of thrown off the loop and he's like well we went that way before and it was lovely <laughs> because I didn't want them to meta game because normally yeah. when you walk yeah. around the train you don't see it that way but when you look right. at the map you kind of always assume that one was the other and then then mm -hmm. afterwards so, so they rolled dice and see if they get and and the, if they didn't make the, the DC, I kind of twisted the map a little bit, and and, and they cool. had to walk. So 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 that really helped because they were they were really confused, and then some of them were like, "This is some treachery and whatnot." And 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 they and after a while, they realized that there was some treachery, but they didn't blame me as a DM for screwing them up. They actually thought that okay, the the, the world is against us, so to speak, and mm -hmm. and then it turned into to something that was actually a functional game ploy to 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 make them get lost uh, i think awesome. tied into that jeff i think that as um games if i get into hex crawls and particularly as games get to a higher level and there's more factions i like the idea that um you know it's very common just hand wave wilderness travels oh you're there in three days stuff like that but you know with games like uh kevin crawford's uh various games where there's a faction turn stuff like that have these events going on in the background that, that are on a timeline and that the players cannot directly affect unless they're in the right place at the right time. I think it's mm -hmm. pretty important, right? So I like the idea of they know it's going to take them two days to get to Helm's Deep um, and they have to reinforce that before the orcs come down from Isengard and it'll be a very close thing that they have to get down there before they can close the gates and, you know, the other mark of the, the other warlord of Rohan who's out on the west he had the battle of the fords and will he be able to get back to them and to reinforce them on time um so i think having these things where uh and it's a lot of work for a game master obviously but having a few things where you have timelines of things that are happening even as whatever the players are doing and instead of giving them hints to sort of prod them so that they you know that they can't be in all places at all times so they have to make hard choices about where mm -hmm. they want to be in the game world to affect events so that they turn out well for them. I think that's something that would be uh, very interesting, especially when you get to higher levels. Yeah, um, absolutely. I love that. And it reminds me of one of the best bits of game writing advice I ever heard. And somebody said, when you're writing an adventure, you're not writing what's happening to the characters. You're writing what would happen if the characters weren't there. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah. The world's going to go to pot unless they yeah. actually go in there. And have exactly. some influence. Yeah, and and the way I do do it is that uh, first of all I try to have a, a map for myself that I reveal to the players gradually that is kind of photorealistic that I can actually see what the train. So I try to 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 treat the the overland travel as dungeon. 
a dungeon mm-hmm. crawl. So it's no different to me if they're in a dungeon or, or, or outside in the wilderness. I try to to, to treat it the same way, meaning you, you go every mile and, and a journey is only as long as the number of happenings, things that happen, things they see, mm-hmm. things they experience, encounters and, and all that. So going across a kingdom needs to have a hundred times more encounters and happenings because not all of them are encounters and, and combat. It can be everything from you find something in the ditch to, to you meet someone to talk to or whatever. And and so, so the number of happenings that, that determines the length of the journey. But also I have my large map I have counters that that I don't show to the players where I have all the other participants, major NPCs, military forces, and, and, and trade caravans and all that, that I actually from day to day, usually like twice a day, I kind of go around and move them around to see what's happening. So I can tell what the players encounter. So the world, there is a living world out there that the players kind of move through and, and that actually moves and and. and kind of interacts with the players but also so they interact with each other and the players can stumble into something or or or, or so so the time factor becomes critical there so that's how i tried to deal with it and i like that because it allows you to do exactly what happened in this book which is the party has been split right now effectively three or four different parties right yep and so that if you're running for example with more than one group you maybe have a game a tuesday night game and a thursday night game and you know an online game, you can still have them all be in the same world and have things happening, and you kind of just know where these things line up. And I think that's really, uh, for me as a game master, and you've seen this, Jeff, when we play, that it's it's important for me to believe in the world that I am presenting, right? I don't have to have a detail down to the last, you know, like this is the color of socks they wear in this kingdom, but I have to feel <laughs> like there's a reality to the world, like you know that there's weather, that there's seasons, that you know that kind of stuff like that, um, that. You know, it's not as easy to travel in the 20 as we do in the 20th century here, 21st century now. You know, it's a big deal to climb over a mountain into the valley instead of going around the mountain, right? Um, so I think that that is um, pretty key. Anyway, that's a thought. Yeah, absolutely. So we are running out of time. And I'm curious, Anna, before we wrap this episode up, was there any last thing that you wanted to chat about? Well, I just wanted to say thank you so much for, for having the chance to, to be here and, and, and also to inspire me to read the book again because it's 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 fantastic. Now I have the, the, the last couple of chapters of, of, of the the, um, the the last book to, to, to read, but it's and then I'm going to watch the movies again to really indulge oh, myself into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's perfect. So thank you so much for, for that. That's been right. a great help. Right. And Andrew, do you have any projects that you want to tell people out that are that are coming well, out? Or? Um, right now I'm I'm working on on um, Midgard, the next installment of Midgard, that I think the name is already out there. It's going to be the east of, of, of Midgard. So that is my huge project that I'm, I'm soon to wrap up. And then I will move into to Greyhawk this fall after Gen Con. It will be Greyhawk for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. And, and the big one is that I will my current map is set in 598, like after the Living Greyhawk campaign and stuff, but I will make a version that is set in 576. So I will go back to my map and, and, and rework it back into the political situation of 576. That's something that a lot of my patrons and, and fans have always asked for. So so that's coming this fall. That's, so that was that's the, basically the year of the box set was released. Yes. In, mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. Yep, yeah. yep. So <laughs> it's perfect. It's, Yep, to move to move the whole map back there, and then I have some detail. I'm I'm starting to map the the Flannies and 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 its environment I- again, but in in a hundred times more detail than wow. I used to. So the first installment of the Lendor Isles is coming this this fall with with that is going to be photo real 
it's going wow. to be the yeah, be detailed about a hundred feet per pixel. Wow! So it's that's going to be yeah. So so that that's way way more detailed than than it is currently. So yeah. Now, if somebody wants to become a patron or wants to find you on social media, where can they look? They can look at uh, ghmaps.net or annabmeyer.com. They both lead to to my website. Or they can go to patreon.com forward slash annabmeyer. And and those are the, yeah, those are the spots. And and I'm on Facebook and Twitter as well. And they are gorgeous maps, by the way. They really are. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Your cartography is stunning. And before we wrap up, I do want to share one quote by Faramir. And Faramir says, I am wise enough to know that there are some perils from which a man must flee. So <laughs> oh, that that's, oh yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> All right, Hoy, how can people get a hold of us? If you want to uh, email us, we're at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. We're also on MeWe and Facebook. Just look for Appendix N Book Club. And Jeff, why don't you tell them about our Patreon? Absolutely. You can go to Patreon slash Appendix and Book Club if you would like to show us some support. If you like the show and would like to go ahead and let us know, that's a great place to do that. We would like to go ahead and give a shout out to some of our patrons. Uh, hello and thank you to Joseph, Andrew Sternick, Stanley Raduski, David Willems, Eric Johnson, and Ethan Schoonover. Our next two episodes, episode 52, will be on Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tainar of Pellucidar, and episode 53 will be on H.P. Lovecraft's The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. So thank you all so much for listening. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>